Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and today we're talking about abortion. You know, I had this conversation planned with Mako for a little bit and had been thinking about abortion for a while, but in the midst of all of the political things that are happening right now, it just felt really important to bring this conversation to you right now. So yes, today I'm talking with Mako Nagasawa about abortion. And I approach this issue with as much sobriety as feels necessary for the intensity of all that is going on with the rollback of reproductive rights in the United States. The reality is, whether we grew up Christian or not, most of us know someone who has or will have an abortion if we have not had one ourselves. We know that this conversation has been limited in how we think about gender and how we think about disability and all of those things, and we can't hit everything in a single conversation. So while we're not trying to make this conversation all-encompassing, we are trying to create space to open a conversation that has been closed either functionally or rhetorically to many of us. I frankly have no interest in arguing pro-life, pro-choice, or anything of that matter, but rather letting this conversation be as human and gray as it is. So I invite you to show up, to breathe through it, and to try to enjoy, or at least connect with this episode with Mako Nagasawa. So Mako, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate having you on, especially in these times, to talk about this topic. Absolutely, Brandy. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It it honestly is an honor and a gift because this is a conversation I've wanted to have for a long time and haven't really known how, and I think your book has given some context for that. And before we get into our topic today, which everyone will know if they've looked at the title of this, is abortion. But before we talk about the intensity of all of the things, I always ask my guests to describe what does it mean to be you? So if you could share your pronouns and what it means to be you, I would really appreciate helping people get to know you in that way. Sure. Um, Mako Nagasawa, he, his. I am a displaced Californian. Uh, I grew up in the Los Angeles area, lived in the in the Bay Area for a while, uh, going to college. And, and, um, and then when I met my now wife, Ming, uh, we moved out to, she was living in Boston. And so I moved out to Boston where I live here in uh, intentional Christian community. Um, I'm an elder at my church, Neighborhood Church of Dorchester. And and my community is um, mostly black and brown. And I feel honored to uh, participate in in this community. Um, another time we could, we could talk about what it's like to be a suburban Asian American kid contributing to to um, urban ministry. And I love that. But yeah, that's a little bit of me. Well, tell me a little bit about your vocation or your sense of calling. How does how does all of that because I know that you are a deeply uh, integrated person in the way that you think about your life and values. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do in the world? Sure, I started an organization called the Anastasis Center for Christian Education and Ministry. And uh, we're a small team that focuses on Christian restorative justice and healing atonement from the early church, which kind of continues it mostly in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, some Catholic, um, some Anglican and Wesleyan in the Protestant world. C.S. Lewis, for instance, uh, was was really big into standing in, in this particular place. But we just find that this answers a lot of questions. Um, related to reading scripture, our spiritual formation, all the way to engaging the world in housing justice, criminal justice reform, uh, economics. And so, so the, the applications are, are huge. The, um, the, uh, and so we, we put out a lot of material um, that brings kind of the early church to life and uh, makes it really, really usable, kind of off the shelf tools. 
That is so helpful because I know for many of us who want to learn about those things, uh, the convolute, like the example I always use is N.T. Wright's commentary on Paul. It's like two yeah. volumes and multi-thousands of pages. And I read through the whole thing. And at the end of it was like, I don't actually think I understand any of what I just read. And so I appreciate the approachable connectivity to ancient things with modern implications and really postmodern implications. So I appreciate that that's some of the work that you're doing in the world. Absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. So we're going to talk today about abortion. And part of why I had you on, and this isn't entirely, so I've, I've actually, I'm pretty familiar with some of your other work around table fellowship, and it's been formative for me and some of my readings of the Gospel of Luke. And I know those are some kind of deep cuts. But you wrote this book, Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. And when I came across the book, I was kind of like, I don't know why someone would write this book right now. I'm glad it exists, and I'm glad you did it. But I'm curious what actually drew you to writing this book, because I think that that context might help us as we enter it more thoroughly into this kind of interdisciplinary conversation I'd like to have around abortion. Absolutely. So, you know, I I, I, be, I came to Jesus um, when I was in high school, late in high school. And uh, when I went to college, I wanted to study uh, public policy and understand what exactly, how can Christians contribute to the public good, um, human rights, you know, without getting tripped up and going down the path of the abuse of power or theocracy, which it, it marginalizes um, non-Christians or, or perhaps even Christians of color. That I mean, that's what has happened in colonialism. So, so I wanted to understand a bit more about that. Abortion was one of the many issues that, you know, at the time I was like, okay, I, I know I'm supposed to care about this, but I, I don't know exactly how that translates into a policy because I, I knew enough at that time that it, it felt it, it felt complicated enough um, and so you know that was a long time ago and I, and I just kind of let it sit and I listened to different people on different sides um, eventually I went to seminary at a Greek Orthodox seminary and I chose to do a paper on how did the early Christians navigate the fact that, uh, the, the, the most important passage of scripture, Exodus 21, that talks about the moral value of the fetus because it describes a situation where a pregnant woman is involved in a fight and she gets hit and she has, has a miscarriage. And so like what happens there? Do, do they, is Jewish law treating the fetus like a, a full human person? And there's two manuscripts and they disagree. Uh, so the Hebrew Masoretic text says, uh, no, not a human, full human person. It's it. Uh, you can charge a fine because what constitutes personhood is breath and birth. Uh, there's then there's the Greek Septuagint text, which is a translation that was used alongside the Hebrew Masoretic. So the Jewish community didn't see a conflict necessarily here, but uh, that translation says uh, you you check the miscarriage to see if it's formed or unformed. So formed apparently is, is just like a, some, some level of physical development, right? That the fetus has reached, but who, what is that? We don't know. And, and so first of all, um, neither manuscript says that personhood starts at conception. That's really thought provoking. Uh, I, I knew about that. But I, I didn't know how did the early Christians navigate the fact that there was this difference of, you know, which manuscript do we even use? Do we think one is more 
like authoritative or inspired than another. And it turns out that we don't know that either. There's there's really no way to tell. Uh, so so then they made decisions based on consulting science, the science of their day. Uh, so to put it in a nutshell, the Greek East, like Basil of Caesarea and Gregory of Nyssa, relied on on uh, Galen, the doctor, and Hippocrates, uh, you know, who made the Hippocratic Oath. And their their general practice was not to do abortions. And so the Greek East went that way. The Latin West favored Aristotle, who studied miscarriages and said, uh, being unformed and formed seems to take place at a certain period of time, like maybe basically halfway through the pregnancy. And then the Latin West said, that's when ensoulment happens, when mom feels the baby kick in the womb, because uh, the, the principle of life is also connected to motion. So when you feel the, the kicking, that's when ensoulment happens. But anyway, uh, they the churches went in different directions. There's a little, there's even more nuance, which I get into in the book, but those are the two major ones. Um, and so, you know, the Anglicans inherited that, the Puritans inherited the Latin West. And so by the time of the U.S. Constitution, people believed in quickening and abortion was okay up to that point. Yeah. That's crazy. It's wild. It's absolutely wild. And even that concept of like, so for folks who don't know quickening, quickening is essentially like when a parent feels the, like when a pregnant yes. person feels the child moving in them, just as a concept. And, and to right. that end, I think that that's, so it's interesting that that's how you came into it. And I'm interested in the, the texts that you're talking about, in the history that you're talking about, because many of us who were formed to be what I'm going to call temporarily pro-life, just for the sake of ease in introing this conversation, but I want to talk about those terms in a second. Yeah. That didn't have anything to do with what we were talking about. For me, a lot of my formation around thinking about abortion was highly rhetorical. So it was like, you're pro-life because those other people are pro-death. Or there's like us people who love babies, and then there's these other people who are baby killers, or right. like you're helping a pregnancy resource center, so you're given this like rhetorical item, like a baby bottle that you fill with coins to represent this unborn child, even this phrasing of unborn. And so I think that the stuff that you're saying actually isn't context that most American U.S. Christians have for talking about abortion at all. That's right. I think most people expect to find that the Bible just says life begins at conception yeah. somewhere. It, it doesn't say that, and it doesn't indicate that either. So, yeah, I mean, of course, there's uh, poetic stuff like uh, God knit me in my mother's womb or uh, knew me before I was born. And yes, that's there, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't tell us enough. Exodus 21 does. And, and so that's why that's the single most important passage when it comes to understanding uh, at, at least how Jewish law understood the the moral weight of the fetus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate that you describe it as the moral weight of the fetus, because there's a way that many people will be like, well, Exodus 21 is talking about abortion. And you're like, well, it's not really, but it's talking about this concept within the abortion conversation right. that is really important and challenges a lot of the rhetoric that's used in our current political conversation. And I think for me, that becomes so complicated because we're talking about, because what, what Christians often do is frame the conversation about abortion as a theological issue or a biblical interpretation issue, rather than a political issue, a legal issue, a philosophical issue, a social political issue, a the, you know, right. like all of those things. And I think that the a scientific issue, a medical issue, right, there's all kinds of 
disciplines that this conversation fits into. And to just say the Bible clearly says this thing creates an indoctrinating process around this idea of life, fetus, womb, viability, abortion, right. and the moralization of all of those things. That's right. That's right. And and then, you know, because we expect that to be an anchor point, it, like in an absolute sense, we don't look at other issues that have a bearing on on the fetus. So, for example, in Numbers 5 and Deuteronomy 22, I mean, we don't totally know how this was carried out in ancient times, but if there was a, a, a conception because of adultery, then supposedly it's like the death penalty for that, which means that they didn't care whether the, the woman being stoned was pregnant. Now, again, there's there's questions that we might have about that, but those passages are discussed in the Jewish community because there's something about um, legitimacy of, of the union itself, the sexual union, that has a bearing on, again, the moral weight of the fetus and what to do there. So, so it's complicated, um, but it's strange that Christians just that they don't follow the same path as the Jewish community. And that, by the way, the majority view of the major Jewish community is personhood comes with breath and birth because of they follow the Hebrew Masoretic text of Exodus 21. Somehow we, I'll just say, I think a lot of uh, white evangelicalism in the United States really likes to keep things simple because they think it should be simple and they don't really want people to think that hard. Yes. I think that one, I think even this is a deviation in some ways, but even as we think about critical race theory, Dr. Brittany Cooper talks about how the fear of critical race theory communicates to us that the current, you know, the current religious right is attempting to create yep. a chronically illiterate and uneducated population because uneducated populations are easier to control. And we're seeing the effects of that in the current abortion policy that's playing out right now. And I want to talk about that in a second, because, you know, even today, as we're recording, there was a leak of a document where the Supreme Court is in, seems to be intending to, very predictably so, overturn constitutional precedent, precedent on Roe versus Wade, Casey versus right. Planned Pregnancy, uh, the Doe, yeah, the uh, Doe versus... Ooh. Bolton. Bolton. Doe v. Bolton. Yep. And so I want to talk about that, but I think in what you're, I think you're saying something really significant in this uh christians want to simplify things and there's a way that the way we simplify things means that we don't actually define terms and we don't identify myths that we might believe in our cultural consciousness and so i was wondering if we could lay out together kind of maybe go back and forth some about some of the myths and terminology issues that actually come into play as we have this conversation because i think the language actually makes a lot of this stuff a non-starter yes absolutely and and just to that point i think that um, political operatives and sometimes church leaders as well want people to respond with an emotion of disgust, right? And and so it's the the emotion of pedophilia, ew, abortion, ew, and then you know folks start to describe migrants, you know, looking for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border as diseases or disease carriers, or Asian Americans are diseases, right, because of the coronavirus's origins in Wuhan, China. So it that that language is very powerful and it's it's very sinister. So happy to define terms. 
Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because I and I and I want to set up the again. I feel like I'm going to do like ten thousand caveats in this conversation because they're necessary, and this might be the only conversation many people have ever heard people having about this in a pub, like a whatever you call a virtual public space. Yeah, because I think there's a kind of there's a contrast that happens between the religious right and then the kind of progressive left, and I and I don't always define things in those polls, but it is helpful I think in this conversation where you're describing this kind of disgust inducing rhetoric from the religious right, from political, the GOP currently. But then you have on the left, these kind of extremes, like I think about Lena Dunham, who I think pretty iconically said before, like that she wished she had had an abortion so that she could relate to other people who had had abortions. And it was this like distasteful kind of flippant way of describing something that people who have had abortions, or people who have who have terminated their own pregnancies have experienced in a really visceral way that she can't identify with. And so I think there's these kind of poles that exist that then get put against each other when it seems like the the moral the a place where we can stand morally probably stands in the middle of those poles somewhere and is far more right. complicated and situational than it is set in stone. And so I think I would just start by saying I think one of the non-starters or one of the myths is just that like Christians have always thought this way about abortion, like that Christians have always seen abortion as a considerable political issue that needs to be engaged with. And so when we assume that it's how we've always thought, we assume that this kind of anti-abortion policy and politic is orthodoxy. Right. So you're asking the question, is that true? Have have Christians always thought this way? Well, I'm saying I think that it's a myth, but if you want to describe right. that, some of that tension, that'd be great. Because I just think if we could get some of the myths and some of the terms engage, then we can actually have the broader conversation that I think is helpful, particularly around the implications on policy and principle. Yes, absolutely. So um, it was it was not until 1980 that uh, the Southern Baptist Convention really changed their position uh, on abortion that I, I think, generally speaking, Christians uh, were, were not in favor of abortion as a birth control method, because obviously there's risk of harm to uh, to the mother as well, and that was always a concern. And, but it was up until 1980, an organization that is now as conservative as, as the Southern Baptists said that, you know, abortion should be legal for uh, the typical exceptions, right? R rape, incest, and um, e even fetal abnormalities. I mean, as as touchy as that language is, and and. Uh, when the mother was at risk for physical, mental, and emotional distress or harm, they said it should be okay. That's the widest possible language. Like to, to say mental and emotional stress, I mean, parenting is hard. So pretty much anyone can claim that and pe people did. So, you know, that, that was the conservative white Protestant position until 1980. We could talk later about what changed. On the other side, there's like the Democrats. Uh, I'm sorry, the Catholics, and the 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 Demo They were largely Democratic, uh, and they saw abortion as the result of poverty because they uh, had watched the the Great Depression happen, and abortion rates spiked during the Great Depression. Of course, because if you're stressed and you you have no hope, why would you bring children into the world? So of course, a, a poverty is a driver of the abortion rate. I mean, later uh, it, it was conservative Republicans that tied abortion to poverty as like poverty should be the consequence of of having sex outside of marriage or having a child before you're ready or whatever. And and so 
abortion was just one policy of a, it, it has always been a touch point or part of a larger package of policy views that either support a social welfare paradigm, like with, say, the Catholic New Deal Democrats, or a capitalist merit, merit, meritocratic retributive paradigm where you should have a kid because if you if you have sex and you're not really ready to have a kid, like then th that should be the consequence and you should have a hard life. Uh, so, I mean, there were there were a lot, there's a lot more there, but it just shows that um, even when we take abortion as a separate issue, we we are not really doing justice to the whole package of views that people have. Yeah, and I'm hearing you say that essentially abortion is a is one circle in a complicated Venn diagram of policy decisions that right. have changed over time and thus changed the political theology of Christians in the U.S. That's right. And it had a lot to do at different points with being anti-immigrant or anti-black anti or um, anti-quack. When the doctors first formed the American Medical, Medical Association and then used abortion as an anti-poisoning um, uh, thing to, to promote professionalization. Meanwhile, they performed abortion in their clinics. Yikes. Yeah, so, so we have this myth that Christians have always thought this way about abortion. I think we've already kind yep. of tapped on the myth that uh, the Bible is clear about abortion, because that clearly is not true from our previous converse, previous point in this conversation. Um, right. I think we've also tapped on the, the myth that the start of life is clear. Um, like I think, because right. right, no, most Christians are saying like birth, like life begins at conception, but we don't have conversations about implantation or actual science around things. And one of the conversations I heard recently is that there's this Christian inconsistency where, say, you were in a medical center that was doing in vitro, that if the if there was a two year old in that building and there was a tray of, you know, what what they would call like potential children or like fertilized eggs. That if the house was burning down or if the building was burning down, you would save the tray before you save the child. Right, because you're saving more lives. Yes. And so My I think goodness. so some of like the logical inconsistencies start to become really clear if we actually think about it. But it's pretty easy just to stop thinking about it if we ended at you're a baby killer. That's right. That's right. And uh, that's why it was important for me to look, see that the early Christians in the first few centuries they had questions too. They weren't even sure what the biblical manuscripts meant or how they, how they would translate. And so they had to ask the scientists that they knew or the scientific sources that they understood um, for some input. So, so clearly they cared about all this. And, and my point today is uh, if we were to do that, if we were to see science as a friend in the in embryology, right? As how do we understand fetal development uh, and not science as a foe, which is actually how Catholics and Protestants have, have treated science in different ways over the last century and a half, then we would find that actually it is very un... I don't think we can say that life, that human personhood begins at conception. Legal human personhood, which, which is what Personhood USA and uh, different Christian organizations and other organizations do want to say about conception. 
Yeah, totally. Which I think is really, yeah, I think that's really helpful. Um, I think another myth that, that if you could speak to this, it would actually be really helpful, even just yeah. in, in the rhetoric of it, because I think so much of this conversation actually lies in the rhetoric more than it does in the realities. Yeah. I think there's a way that Christians believe a myth that uh, they form their view on abortion from the Bible alone. Can you talk a little bit about that idea? It, yeah, I, I think it's very simple. Um, uh, well, it, I shouldn't say simple. It, it's, it's, it's simplistic. Whenever I have encountered this, it's simplistic. People read Psalm 139 and say, see, God knit me together in my mother's womb. There you go. Um, or Jeremiah 1, uh, God knew me and called me from before I was born. So, so th- th- they, they take a very huge um, nine-month window of time, typically, uh, and collapse it down as, as if all of that at any point um, fit into, that, uh, in, into those verses. And so again, I think they tend to ignore Exodus 21. I, I incidentally get into Facebook debates every once in a while just to, to see what, what do people say when, when, when they have to engage with some of these things. And um, basically, it's a, it becomes a showstopper because they, they have not looked at the single most important verse on, uh, 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 passage on this topic. Yeah, and I think for many folks who grew up in kind of evangelical spaces, the phrases like sola scriptura or like... yeah even just the idea of Bible literalism plays pretty heavily into that. And I think what it ends up doing is it causes us not to ask actual questions about the text and just read it as a straightforward thing that's trying to do a specific thing, when typically the questions we're asking the text to answer are not the questions that the writers of the text, the engagers of the text were trying to answer. So even in like the Jeremiah, like, you knew me in my mother's womb becomes like, well, life begins at conception and like, and it gets in this like kind of Calvinist territory of how is God forming and ordaining your life beforehand and therefore to have an abortion right. or to miscarry even is against the will of God. And so I think it gets very complicated when we start to impose questions on texts that aren't trying to answer the questions that we want to answer. That's right. And and for those uh, folks, uh, and uh, however well-intended they are, that, that, then they're struck, it, it strikes them really hard that 50 to 70% of all fertilized eggs do not implant in the mother's uterus. So it's, it's, it's like... Well, if that's true, if if those two things are true, right? Life begins, yeah, personhood begins at conception, and and then there's this super high rate of failure to implant. Then over half the people in existence have been wiped out, like for no no really good reason. And so <laughs> that's a weird thought. Um, yeah, but that's just one example of the 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 different consequences of thinking that way. Yeah, that the moral theological implications become far more complicated if we actually take some of these ideas to their logical conclusions, which end up actually being quite illogical or deeply troublesome at the very least. That's right. That's right. And it winds up shooting us, at least for for conservative pro-lifers today, it winds up shooting them in the foot because they will, uh, on a policy level, vote against for example, copper IUDs, right? Uh, the, the the most effective birth control method, especially for um, for for um, women who are poor, uh, because it's lo- it's long lasting. But there there is a small possibility that it could fail to prevent fertilization, 
and also cause a non-implantation, which technically then for, for people in their minds, it's like that's an abortion and that's killing someone. So I can't afford to fund this. I, I can't approve it. But actually, if if I think the science is pretty firmly on the side of like, I don't think we can start personhood as early as that. And so you're safe. Like you'd be, you'd be, you, you'd be, you can do that and have, you can vote for uh, IUDs, copper IUDs and, and birth control and contraception and contraceptive care, like through the Affordable Care Act, or if we ever get Medicare for all, who knows. Um, and, and you can have a good conscience, like you're clear. So there's, there's all kinds of ramifications for this. It, it really hurts us to not look deeply at these issues. Yeah, and then I think as we as we see all this kind of abortion policy being put into place, particularly on the state level, you know, we have iconically like SB8 in Texas, this one that recently went through in Oklahoma and is going to the governor's desk that pretty much prevents right. all abortion in whatever capacity. I think we have to ask the question, like, how far does this end up going if we follow the pseudoscience of it? And I think that as you're talking about contraception in various capacities, I think the kind of war on uh, people who give birth and on women in particular yeah. gets uh, more and more dangerous the more that we play with this abortion policy, knowing that the policies themselves don't prevent abortions. But I would like, I was just wondering if we can talk a little bit about patriarchy, because I think that that kind of, that conversation about abortion, contraception, bodily yeah. autonomy, freedom, what it means to live viable lives, not just for babies, but for you know people in general feels really live. Right. And so I'm wondering if you could just give me like, what's your baseline first first take on the kind of role and space of patriarchy in this? I know it's an absurd question because it's giant, but let's just talk about that for a bit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's my it, it, it's my conviction that patriarchy is sinful, that it's a product of the fall. And so the, in the original creation, Adam and Eve were created to be equals and co-equals. Uh, we even see John Chrysostom, who's a heavy hitter in the world of the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, say, uh, God didn't tell Eve to submit to Adam, they were equals. And, and then patriarchy really begins when Cain tries to control his son Enoch, so Enoch could farm for him, protect him, and, and do all these things because Cain had corrupted himself. So so biblically speaking, patriarchy is from the fall and needs to be counteracted, at least tempered. So now concretely, when it relates to um, the themes of men and women in scripture, I think there, there are very strong cases to be made where, uh, and, and really important cases where women are given institutional advantages over men in certain situations um, because they're more vulnerable in those situations. And so I'll, I'll name two in uh, the Hebrew scriptures, and then I'll, I'll talk about one in church history, if we have time for that, Brandy, and you could nod. Okay, so so one is um, wives had more rights than husbands in Jewish law. There's this very peculiar place in Exodus 21 where it says wives have uh, conjugal food rights to food, shelter, and conjugal rights, which all the rabbis interpret as she has a right to sexual satisfaction. The husband doesn't. Like the same thing does not apply to him. And uh, I just have to say, I thought I find that really funny uh, and and very realistic. And and so the 
the the issue there is in the ancient world especially but even now today like a, a woman who's a wife is more vulnerable um, especially in these realms especially sexually than her husband and so uh, there is such a thing as marital rape as a category but it's considered sinful in the Jewish tradition now that was not true in the UK and the US the in in UK in British and American law there was no such thing as marital rape until like the 1970s 1980s basically because it was considered that if, if a wife said yes at the altar then she's saying yes every single time and it was just a man's patriarchal prerogative to take the sex so even if he had been estranged if, if even if they had been separated he could just come back and demand sex if he had gotten aids or a venereal disease he could demand sex and she had no right to say no so the Jewish tradition had always said, no, that's, that is, we recognize that that's a problem and it's sinful. So that's one example of real limitations on patriarchy. Another is uh, the two or three witnesses rule was abrogated for a woman who was making a rape accusation. So when we talk about the Me Too movement, I mean, in Deuteronomy 22, it's really interesting. That, so a woman who accuses a man of rape counts as the two or three witnesses. Of course, because who else is going to be around to to see that? Or, or even if we if we interpret witness as a character witness rather than an incident witness, then yeah, you know, her voice is gonna is gonna have to mean more in this situation. So those are institutional advantages that Scripture itself gives to women over men in certain situations, and um, just uh, it, it it's and, and then the third example comes from church history where church leaders basically said prostitution is a form of slavery so we could think of all kinds of reasons why a woman might be a prostitute maybe she's impoverished maybe she was being blackmailed maybe she was abandoned by her parents and raised by a pimp there's all kinds of reasons so we're not going to count that against her we we are going to say that to the the only reason that we could think of of why a man would buy sex from a prostitute or from a a boy, I mean, that happened too, uh, is because of lust. And that is always sinful. So that today, we call that the Nordic progressive model of approaching human trafficking. And it has been shown to be the only effective way to bring down the numbers of human trafficking victims. The church recognized it. So it, even in that sense like they they found um, that women because they're more vulnerable than men in in these situations uh, we needed to be careful and no one said that it's okay that prostitution is okay it's in the same sense that they didn't want slavery so the early Christians I don't know whether you covered this on uh, this on your podcast before, but they were against slavery. So they emancipated people as much as they can. They worked towards abolition. So they didn't think people should be in that state, but they didn't blame them for being in it. And, and that was huge. So, so to back up and say scripture and church history validate the notion that uh, patriarchy is wrong and... Uh, and, and that women should be given institutional advantages over men in certain situations gives us a certain kind of framework to, from, to, from which to begin reflecting on 
how are women more vulnerable today? So I want to bring up North Carolina as an example. I mean, probably one third of North Carolina is white evangelical. So I, I would interpret this as a direct failure of discipling evangelicals in, in the church in North Carolina, which is there's a law that says if a, if a woman wants to withdraw her consent to sex, even while she and a man are having sex, that she can't do that. A man is entitled to finish. Now, why would this come up? It, it seems to be because men remove their condoms during sex. And so, so other states have said, no, that's rape. But North Carolina has said, that's okay. And <clears throat> that is just unfathomable. And it is, it, it is, again, if you say that you care about abortion as an issue and want to bring down the abortion rates, then, then you have to want to bring down uh, the, the rate of unintended pregnancies. Well, that's a, that's a really good example of how it seems like patriarchy is in the minds of those North Carolinians who support a law like that. And so they would rather deal with abortions as the byproduct of patriarchy rather than undermine the than than repent of the patriarchy and therefore have fewer abortions. Yes. And I think that plays into the punitive models that a lot of like far right folks right. use to think about abortion, which is that like abortion is in some ways or like pregnancy or giving birth is somehow a punishment for something that you did or it's a moral failing that you right. need to then atone for in your life and by raising a child. And yeah. and, and as I hear you talking about that, the two kind of groups that come to mind as I consider patriarchy in this issue of abortion are pastors and policymakers. And as I look yeah. at the pastors and policymakers who have formed the modern ideology of conservative politics around abortion, I'm seeing all of these particularly white men deciding not just the, the body autonomy question, because we know that historically some of the response, some of the caring so much about abortion comes as a response to second wave feminism and sexual and bodily autonomy um, for women. And so yeah. I think when we start to see some of these abortion policies as highly reactionary, it's a lot easier to see the ways that patriarchy plays a role in them. Because I'm watching like some of these conservative policymakers who have themselves had mistresses, who they've had you know, have abortions who are then creating policies that would prevent the very thing that they're talking about, but wouldn't prevent it for them because they have the kind of wealth and affluence and political and social status to acquire abortion for someone who is their partner if they would want to. And so they're creating anti-poor people policies rather than actually being anti-abortion because they're doing that themselves in their own lives. Exactly. It, it's a lot like um, the drug laws and the quote-unquote war on drugs. So uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, a, a lot of the backlash um, from from conservatives, from the, the Republican Party, comes from uh, a view of the 1960s as that was really, really bad. Uh, and, and not just when it comes to women and bodily autonomy, but also minorities, because that was the... Uh, the, the age when they were mobilized, especially Southern white evangelicals were mobilized against Brown v. Board of Education from 1954. And the same rhetoric that they used there, they just transferred over to eventually Roe v. Wade and, 
um, being anti-abortion. So it's these unelected judges who are making these decisions. They're stepping on our state's rights. The federal government is overreaching. Uh, and of course, when they want to use the federal government, that that's totally fine, right? So, you know, as with the Fugitive Slave Act or, or with... Um, now, like there, there's already rumblings about a federal law that would um, ban all abortions across the nation. So, like, wait, do you believe in states' rights or not? I mean, and and that gets into the Fourteenth Amendment and why we have the Fourteenth Amendment and the the fact that the reason why we have states to begin with actually has a lot to do with slavery. It's not the only reason, but it. It is one of the reasons, and <clears throat> and so there are problems in our Constitution that the issue of abortion intersects also. Yeah, which is deeply challenging because it makes abortion a highly technical conversation. Yep. And so Christians are having a very simple moral conversation. The actual conversation is highly technical, which leaves a lot of people, I think, in a space of either aggression or anxiety or kind yeah. of intensity without a lot of like pastoral space to really be like how do i manage the emotions that i'm experiencing around this and instead right. vote with their feelings rather than the kind of common sense political actions that would actually help if so i'm like okay if you want to be politically pro-life fine yeah but actually do things that prevent pregnancy or actually do things that prevent abortion and don't just criminalize people who are having them or providers who are providing them because that creates the context for more and more abortions. Right. And and there's a fundamental issue of do we want abortion to be part of a criminal justice package or do we want it to be part of a social welfare and public health package? Like what is the overall paradigm that we're going to use in order to bring down the abortion rate. So I am very firmly in the camp of social welfare and public health, because that the other the other direction leads to a situation like uh, prohibition did with alcohol. Um, it didn't stop it. It created this huge gray market and black market, and it corrupted the police. Um, the medical uh, uh, professionals couldn't get access to the people who needed it the most. You know, I, I mean, we, we, and we have really good data about that. Mark Graber's book, Rethinking Abortion, uh, tells a lot of the stories. I, I, I am very indebted to him for one of those chapters because it shows that a criminal justice approach it, to abortion or anti-abortion is really uh, counterproductive. And it places people into these totally no-win situations. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's part of why the SB8 law in Texas is so egregious. So for folks who aren't familiar, Texas's law bans abortion after six weeks. Most women don't even know they're, or most people who can become pregnant do not even know they're pregnant at that point. Yeah. And the particularity and how this came through and how it has become this war on Roe v. Wade that's now in this Mississippi law at the Supreme Court is particularly egregious because it creates a vigilante system around abortion. So saying anyone who helps someone get an abortion, your Uber driver, your provider, someone who helps you get to where you need to be, even if they're not criminalizing the pregnant person, they're criminalizing every person around that person in a way that increases the criminal justice impact of that. And now that law has um, such a dysfunctional language in it that it's not 
the implications are not necessarily as egregious on paper because it's so legally untenable. But the ideology around it is to say that if we criminalize more and more, we will prevent abortion. And that's simply untrue. That's right. That's right. So uh, I, I, I don't think we have quite enough data or stories about the Texas situation yet. But again, we have lots of data and stories from prior to 1973, prior to Roe v. Wade being passed. Uh, there were there were many states that had more or less draconian anti-abortion laws on the books, and abortion rates stayed fairly high. And, uh, uh, you know, a lot of um, a lot of poor women women of color uh, and and others were, were forced into very unsafe situations. Mm -hmm. the, the, the major impact of Roe v. Wade was, also, was, was actually women stopped dying when they, when they got an abortion. So the, the other thing to look at is really to other countries because Uganda is a country that takes a largely criminal justice retributive approach to uh, abortion policy and they have one of the highest rates of abortion. However, if you look at Western Europe, they take mostly a social welfare policy. Um, and, and they have some restrictions too, like France, which is a mostly secular country, uh, mostly limits abortions to, to the first trimester. I mean, there are exceptions after that, but they, they have the lowest rates of mm -hmm. abortion. And, and so it, it fits with the older sense like that Catholics who saw the Great Depression happen and they saw the uh, abortion rates go up, that, that sense of people need hope, people to become parents, right? Like people, people will have more kids if they have um, more confidence about jobs. So, you know, here in the States, there was a study that Enber, the National Bureau of Economic Research did on the Rust Belt showing that when jobs were shipped overseas, men proposed uh, to to their their girlfriends, significant others, at lower rates than before. Like they're he more hesitant to get married. Mm -hmm. So um, it doesn't mean that people are having sex any less. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but 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 that's the that's the the whole environment, right? Like we're we're talking about the whole person mm -hmm. and whole communities. So. That's really important because, you know, when for, over 14 percent of all abortions are procured by married people mm -hmm. like that really is challenging to the anyone who wants to assume like, look, marriage will solve your problems because <laughs> yeah. th then you can have kids. Well, no, parenting is hard and yes. and economics matters. So <clears throat> so it's very important that we decide which lens are we gonna look through? Is it social welfare and public health or is it criminal justice? Yeah, and I, I'm also hearing you say too that a moral desire for there to be fewer abortions does not create the effect of there being less abortions. And I think that that's part of the Christian right. idealization of an anti-abortion political theology is that it assumes that if we are morally focused enough that it will create the political and social environment that prevents the thing that we're morally opposed to somehow. That's right. And and Christians shoot themselves in the foot all the time with this. Like the, the 
the the worst uh, type of sex education for public school, you know, school students is abstinence only. Yes. You know, that that has been shown it, sadly in states in the South primarily is, is the data that I'm familiar with, with producing the highest levels of teen pregnancy and, and sex rather than it let's well, let's just talk about um, not just sex broadly, but also what is healthy relationship? Let's ask that question. And does does having sex with someone increase the health of the relationship? Like, well, let's talk about that and yeah. when and how. And so but but sometimes Christians are very scared uh, about having conversations like that, I think, because and, and this is, um, you know, this this gets us further into theology and the history of theology, but I think that because Augustine said we're so depraved that there's very little of the image of God left. And so to to bring up the topic of sex, we I think Christians think it's just going to make people have sex. So we, we don't think that there's any kind of residual image of God that is that is present in people where they can think through from a not even just like a purity culture perspective, but a wisdom culture, like Proverbs 8. Like, well, if God made the creation out of his wisdom, then he made us out of his wisdom too. So we're going to have to think about it. And thinking about his commands should produce a certain type of, oh, um, at least some level of agreement. So, and, and that's been shown to be true. Yeah, you know, I talked to Dr. Amy Jill Levine. I haven't put out the episode yet. It's it's on purity. But one of the things that she talks about is how a lot of Jewish law is centered around how we think about things and pay attention to things and make space yeah. for things. And that when we have conversations about sex, sex education, abortion, all of those things, we're, there's this invitation to think about life and death and to take those things seriously, regardless of the choice that we make around those things, that there's an impetus on the person and on the community to consider the implications, to consider life, to consider parenting and family and principles. And I think what ends up happening in that is that the church's only option is to frame marriage as the solution to all things, including abortion. When in reality, the scriptures have so many principles on how to have healthy relationships and healthy communities and diverse types of families that don't fit in kind of this heteronormative, single family, nuclear family unit sort of situation. And when marriage is the primary focus, it makes anything about abortion seem so far removed, so far sinful, without actually disengaging from the ways that patriarchy shapes that vision or that dream for how the world will be. Right. And so I'm wondering a couple of things, because I think that there's, well... I guess I would like for you to talk a little bit about this kind of Roe v. Wade situation, because it's really fresh right now. And there's, I think on the right, there's a lot of celebration. Like, we finally did it. Like, this is a, like, a, what, three, four, five decade win for conservative lobbyists and policymakers. And then on the left, there's all of this panic, like ideological panic. And then there's real people who are seeking access to abortions, whose lives are in danger from a lack of access to abortion. There's We're already seeing spikes in kind of the dangerous ways in which people seek to have abortions when it's criminalized. So can you talk a little bit about the implications of some of these policies beyond just not preventing abortions? Because I think that becomes like the center of it when there's so many other things that you're talking about sociologically, around poverty and economically. So you talk a little bit about, yeah, how are you thinking about 
this moment in time? Um, it, well, it, it is it is scary to think that state legislatures could go that far. Um, I I I wonder from a legal perspective what's going to happen to the country because you know. Uh, primarily red states that are making abortions illegal or criminalizing the help, helping someone, you know, get, a, get an abortion, that is going to intersect with blue states, quote unquote, that are protecting citizens of those states or protecting access to abortions within the, those states. And so there's already, uh, you, you can forecast some kind of um, Supreme Court battle of, well, is it residents of a state or is it anyone who can cross the state line? Like is the state a, have jurisdiction over its territory? And uh, again, I think that, um, that's, that, that is going to sadly line up with, um, views about gun rights. Right. And, and the more, when you have vigilanteism, then you're going to have some degree of higher gun violence. That is, terrifying terrifying now with abortion itself um i mean fr from the data that we have we know that uh, uh women at the poverty line have three times the uh, a higher abortion rate than than you know those who are not at the poverty line and so economics drives a lot of decisions. We've, we've seen during COVID, the abortion rate go up. We saw during the, the financial meltdown of 2008, 2009, the abortion rate went up. So <clears throat> um, unfortunately, when we look at the, the economic policies on the right, we, we would have to say, again, economic conservatism is going to shoot people in the foot Moral, whether or not you're, you would say on a policy level, you're moral conservative, that's one thing. Um, there are real questions there about how to best do that, that, that I would want to talk about. But, but to join that moral conservatism with economic conservatism is deadly. And again, it's, it's self-defeating. It, less regulation for companies, that's another thing. We are poisoning um, the fetus and and why is it illegal or considered illegal to to put poison somehow into the womb or harm the, you know the fetus in the womb when it's legal for companies gas companies oil companies uh to to pollute the fetus in the womb those are the kinds of things that i i just think these are horrible uh choices then that um, the strict anti-abortion policy forces upon uh, families, upon those who are going to give birth, and, and especially those who are poor among them. That's just an awful, awful choice. We would expect a rise in um, uh, fetal abnormalities and, and birth defects and so on. So, but now, you know, if, if we're also going to defund public schooling and uh, social services, then are, are people going to be left to their own devices to, to pay for the increased childcare support that they need? That's, that's going to be gut-wrenching. Yeah, and, and you're framing an, the, I think, an issue for many Christians, which is that people frame integrity as your moral life lining up 
one-to-one with your political action when in a non-idealized world that's rarely possible like it's very rare for me in any of the political work that i've done that the thing that i believe at my ideal is actually possible to enact politically on in the way that i would want to do it and so i think that that causes a lot of internal turmoil for christians and i think it's why we tend toward the simple answer and i don't want to go through this conversation without naming too that in abortion conversations particularly on the left there's a lot of ableism that comes into play around how we think about, you know, and, and again, the language, the common language is like abnormality or deformation in different yeah. ways, which I, yeah. which we know has so many issues in how we think about people with disabilities. But I just wanted to name that that's a, that's a thing that on the left, I see a particular issue around and not actually naming the ways that how we think about abortion is highly tied to how we think about what it means to be a quote unquote full human. And so I would do want to name that piece. And I also want to name that for many, right. for many folks, as we think about Roe v. Wade being overturned, a lot of Christian solutions are non-solutions. Like there's these political policy solutions. And then also the one that I heard a lot growing up or even in, you know, as a campus minister for 10 years and at one of the public universities that I was a part of, right? Public universities, anyone can do anything on those campuses. And so these pro-life groups would come with these big ass signs with pictures of aborted fetuses or like you know, and a lot of them were like photoshopped to look horribly grotesque or like, you know, all these things that were actually like debunked in a lot of ways. And they would just say like, repent, or you'll go to hell, essentially. You know, it was a slightly more sophisticated than that, but not much more so. And there would be these group of yep. like, of women, there's always a group of like token white women who were there who were like, adopt, don't abort. And there's these kind of jokes that there's these like people who go these pundits who go out to these and ask all the people one at a time, like, well, how many kids have you adopted? And they're like, none. And they go through all of them and no one's adopted any kids. And so I just want to name that there's like, there's the rhetorical issue that's a non-solution. And then within that rhetorical issue that's a non-solution is this reality that adoption doesn't save the abortion crisis for people who consider this a crisis. People, yeah. Adoption is not a a viable solution for that. And I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about that because I think for many Christians, rhetorically, it's the only place we can land. And that has been historically unhelpful. It, it is, it's mathematically unhelpful because we would go through that. I mean, there's a number, there's a, there's a certain number of households or, or, or adults who are willing to adopt. And there's also the abortion rate. And if you put those two things together, we would go through uh, that the available number of adoptive parents in less than three years. So it's not a solution. No, it really isn't. And it's so frustrating, I think, because it does this other, we do not have time to talk about this today, but but the idea of international or interracial adoption and the ways that that creates crises for communities of color and is currently dismantling native sovereignty rights. Like there's all these ways that Christians assume that abortion will be the, not abortion, wow, (laughs) that adoption will be the solution when it ends up being a part of the colonial machine that dismantles the sovereignty of a lot of communities when not done well. And so I think that, again, it feels a little bit like a non-solution. And so I'm wondering, I guess, as we as we have this conversation, because again, many folks maybe have never heard any of this before. I guess I'm wondering what things you wish Christians would keep in mind as they enter into conversations about abortion, regardless of where they were on the political spectrum. Because I know some of my folks identify as pro-life, most of my folks are probably more politically liberal and engaging either in politics or just dismantling some of the toxicity of what they grew up with. 
And I guess I'm wondering if you could give some holds for folks who are entering into this conversation the first time and might feel either some of that aggression that we were talking about or the anxiety and where they might start or where they could go. Your book obviously is a good starting point, but I, I think I just feel like people might need a pastoral word for how to engage in this conversation if this is some of their first passes at it beyond the political and like the I'm progressive, so I am pro-choice because I think that's a, where a lot of us stop ideologically. Well, yes. And Brandy, if you, if you mean um, kind of revisiting one's faith, if, 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 you know, your listener is a, is a person of faith or at, was at one point connected to faith, uh, Christian faith in particular, since that's what I know most about <laughs> as it relates to this issue, then um, I think there's a tendency to give up right, to, to say, well, I just know that how the current iteration of the pro-life movement, as wedded as it is to patriarchy and capitalism, it, I, I'm not comfortable with that, and retribution, right, I'm not comfortable with that, so, so it, first of all, I, I would say, well, don't give up on the Christian tradition, don't give up on scripture, um, and, and science, right, these things may wind up being a friend um, and 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 saying let's try to keep these things together um, and have a pastoral view of people as we look at this issue of abortion because again the the tendency is to compartmentalize the the issue and and um, and neglect the, or, or not pay as much attention as we need to, to what's the overall package that it's being connected to. So I'll say, you know, on the on the right, they have totally done this with Paul uh, Weirich and Richard Vigari, who were um, in the 70s and 80s fundraisers. They, they would think, they, they would throw out abortion as the leading issue in order to get people to be anti-communist right and so because it's like why does why does abortion happen it's because of atheism and what's the organized form of atheism communism (laughs) so it's like wait a minute what uh you know look at christian history there was a diversity of views about for example in the west about quickening and abortion was okay up to that point so so anyway um I, I think, I think, in general, I'll speak for me personally. Um, doing all the research for this book has um, given me hope—a hope that we could uh, stand politically for our children, like in a in a full orb way, right? And and I am just as concerned, perhaps even a little more concerned about climate change and um, uh, other issues that will affect our children. And I, I think, you know, it, it's, it is a real shame, as you mentioned, that our current political landscape between the two major parties has us um, focusing on children, but in ways that are strange, that, that, that divide their 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 interests in some ways and so um there there is a way if i think to go forward if we connect abortion 
policy to social welfare and public health, that we could unite those concerns again and approach politics not with despair and not with cynicism, but with real hope that we can leave our world better for our children. Yeah. And I think that's super important. And I think I'm like you, I, I am more concerned with things like climate change and the, and the well-being of the planet that people will inherit right. and the politics and political environments that they will inherit along the way. And, and I think that for me, as I have worked through some of this myself, one of the things that's just been really helpful and freeing is just to know, even as we had the, the Exodus 21 conversation, that there is disagreement, there's always been disagreement, and there's a lot of legitimate, textually engaged ways to engage with this topic that don't require some like line in the sand choice, but that allows for things to be complicated, to be interpreted, and to be shaped by our lived realities. And that divorcing theology from our lived realities and experiences means that we're never going to have the whole picture. And this kind of sola scriptura thing will actually not save people's lives or help their families or help them to engage more effectively in these conversations. And I think it's important that we just like continue to name that knowing the history of this helps us to recognize how politically manipulative and divisive this conversation has become because I think that our Supreme Court looks like it does right now and it's dismantling of the Constitution, which I, you know, right now, I'm not some like constitutionalist or whatever, but the reason we have that Supreme Court is because of the, is in large part because of this issue. And I'm pretty nervous about how far people will take that. And so I think for many folks who are just entering in this conversation, I just want to say, as you learn, it might be very anxiety producing and very scary and very triggering and very frustrating. And that the way that I've held on to, I don't know, reality and Jesus in the midst of it has just been holding the principles of the fruit of the spirit, of Jesus's desire that people live deeply, um, these kind of Jewish principles of really, frankly, being uh, anti-slavery and anti-bodily harm and asking if enslavement and bodily harm are on the table in a political decision, then we probably need to find a different way. And so as I watch the lives and bodies of pregnant people and of women being controlled and controlled and controlled, I look back to those Jewish ideas of bodily harm and who is being harmed. And I'm convinced, I was saying to someone earlier that is a st- like one of the silliest sentences I probably said in a while, which is I think a lot about vasectomies and the ways that if if male people were the ones who were getting pregnant, our policy would look completely different. And so for people who are entering in, I think that we can hold some of that reality of patriarchy and misogyny and say, mm, when, when male people have an issue, it gets solved really quickly and it always leads right. to more freedom and liberation for them. Right. And so I think we have to look away from the policy makers who are mostly white men currently and look toward the people who are being impacted and make our policy and moral decisions based on that reality. That's right. Uh, someone has also said that uh, mandatory vasectomies would uh, reduce the number of both uh, abortions and also uh, non-implanted fertilized eggs, right? So, so, but that's never going to fly politically because what? Because bodily autonomy. Wait, so bodily autonomy means something for men here, but not women here. So it, it's a mess. And um, I, <laughs> it is, it's a mess. Um, yes. Yeah. And I think I'll just, I'll just name too, that it's all a little crazy making. And I use that word really carefully because we are how we've had these like two years of conversations where conservative folks have been 
freaking out about bodily autonomy around masks and vaccines, but can't apply the same logic to other areas. And so I just want to say for folks who are new to the conversation that it might make you feel a little bit crazy to be hearing these conversations to go, hey, this sounds similar to what I've heard before. But that the same principles of preventing bodily harm can be applied across all realms of well-being for humans and that that helps us to be more established in this conversation rather than asking what's the right political thing to do because that kind of single that results in single issue voting which results in donald trump four years of chaos and a gop that is i don't even have words for how terrible it all is right now right right that's right um if anything we should i I don't think there's I, I don't think there's a justification to be a single issue voter, right? That's really tough. That's really tough. Uh, because again, it actually, you, you wind up being wedded to um, a manipulative set of packages that, that drive up the abortion rate. So what you're doing by joining moral conservatism and economic conservatism is you're actually driving up the abortion rate. You're making poor people especially have a much harder time and um, you're reinforcing patterns of poverty, pressures of poverty, and so on. It's, it is not okay. That's so helpful, because I think that a lot of folks, a lot of folks do not think about the, the economic implications of every policy decision that's being made. And especially with our current Republican Party, almost everything is an economic decision that impoverishes the already impoverished more, and creates more wealth and more capitalistic strength and movement potential for people who already have. And when I look at the way of Jesus, I can't see any justification for supporting those kind of systems. And so I think people expect me to be like apolitical on here somehow, which is never, that's not, one, it's not possible, two, it's not the case, and three, I think people should probably know where I'm at on a lot of these things. But I really appreciate that in this conversation, um, one of the things we haven't really done has been like pro-life, pro-choice, because they're stupid paradigms. They're just not helpful paradigms. Right. Right. They're not politically advantageous, they're not morally functional, nor tenable, and the ethics of both kind of enclosed experiences don't actually speak to the broad spectrum of things that we're trying to do and engage with. And so as we close out, I'm wondering if you want to just plug your book a little bit, talk a bit about that, or if there's any like final words that you want to give as people are on this journey of thinking about abortion, especially from their yeah Christian or post-Christian or adjacent to a Christian person worldview. Hmm. Yes. Um, well, first of all, uh, there's my organization's website, and, and I would love it if people went there, especially if they are uh, uh, looking for resources. So the Anastasis Center, is, the, the website is Anastasis, A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-S, center.org. Uh, you could find me there. You could send me a message there. You could see who else is um, connected to the center there. And um I, I would love any visitors, uh, you know, from your audience, especially if uh, you're deconstructing Christian faith and, and are wondering, well, what's left after I peel back all the skins of the onion, right? Like, I mean, the, the reason why I think we construct anything at all is to make space for other people to, to join us. And so uh, it, we, we look at the early church again Christian restorative justice and healing atonement uh, to to mar- to say that's the the center and that's the teaching that we want to like stand on stand in and, and welcome others into um, if if you're 
if you know someone who is giving up on you know Christian faith because of these issues, I, I think there there are resources there. Also, I I think when we are trying to find a relational rather than an individualistic approach to issues, challenges that we face. Um, I think a lot of the Protestant world has just capitulated to uh, uh, American individualism. And so we, we don't, we don't think in, in holistic and relational ways. Uh, and um, the, the early Christians did, and that's why restorative justice is, is focused around the res the restoration of relationship, like what is healthy relationship. And so um, that that shows up as uh, when they tried to, you know, address abortion as as one of many challenges that they faced. So um, so I would love any visitors to connect with us there. And uh, the book is get, again called Abortion Policy and Christian Social Ethics in the United States. Um, there have been some very kind uh, folks who have reviewed the book. Uh, notably, I want to say. Dr. Patrick Smith over at Duke Divinity and Duke Medical School. He's an African-American Christian bioethicist. And he gave me some really kind words uh, before we even had the chance to meet to, to, to meet each other. And I just feel so honored. I want to shout him out uh, here because of that. So um, if, if it's any encouragement or, or challenge as it might be for, for anyone to consider the book, uh, there it is. Well, thank you so much for that. And I'm working through it now. I'm not totally finished yet, but we'll be doing some giveaways of the book on the podcast Instagram page here pretty soon. And I'm just so grateful for your time and for your work in this, because I think especially in this moment, we really need to have more conversations and starting places because again, most of the conversations about abortion in our culture are non-starters and are mm -hmm. just ways to... Uh, perform piety in our politics. Wow, that was a really bad alliteration, but that is what it is. We perform piety in our politics and assume that right. that makes us better than other people. And that is a fundamentally unhelpful, I would say, frankly, un-Jesus-like way of engaging with the real lives of humans around us who are suffering, in pain, figuring out what it means to live in their bodies, finding themselves and finding the divine therein. And so I really appreciate the work that you put in and all that you brought to this conversation today. So thank you so much. Randy, thanks so much for having me. It's been a, a, a pleasure. I, I'm saddened by the, the need to have these conversations, but I, it's, it's very good to connect with you. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. As always, if you like what you hear, you can follow, rate, review, let us know what you think at reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com, or join us financially on Patreon at patreon.com slash reclaimingmytheology. Next week, we're going to start talking about divorce, and then I swear we only have a few more in the patriarchy series before we start into purity culture and take a little bit of a break for the summer. So just know that we're continuing on as we have been hoping that we can do a little bit better together. See y'all next week.